أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا أبي القاسم محمد اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعلى آل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين لا سيما بقية الله روحي وأرواه العالمين له الفداء وأجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على عدائه من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين أما بعد رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الأقطة من لساني يفقه كولي الحمد لله we continue in this blessed month of Ramadan today being the final Friday of this blessed month and as we completed the tafsir of Surah Muhammad yesterday in our last session today I want today and tomorrow I want to go and just give a high level summary and lessons to learn from every verse so I've just kind of gone through at least the half the first half of the chapter for tonight and just one point that we can learn from that particular verse um, I thought this would be a good way for us to refresh ourselves because obviously this is like 27 days ago we started this tafsir so it would be a good refresher and a good reminder of what we have gone through and in that Allah has reminded us in this chapter so when we go right back to the beginning verse number one um, and again these are not in any kind of I, I may not have specifically mentioned them but I have gathered these from the um, the commentaries that we had reviewed so one of the first things that we should have learned from verse number one was that sins are like a chain with a continuous link and the only way to stop the perpetuation of sins is to ensure that the first link is broken that obviously for us, you know, that means that, you know, whenever we find ourselves going towards sins, as we say that, it's like a continuous chain, like a chain link. Right? Sometimes you do one sin, and you have to make another sin to cover up that sin, like lying. Somebody tells one lie, and you can't just tell one, because now you have to tell a second lie to cover the first, and it goes on and on. Or sometimes people will do certain other acts which are haram, and people might see them, or even if people don't see them, but they will have to make up a lie to cover that sin up. And it becomes a continuous, perpetual act in our lives that we always have to continue to sin to make up other sins. So we need to make, ensure that that's why we say that we break that first link, that we don't commit the sins. That way where there is nothing to continue following it up with, to basically, you know, to, to fulfill or to cover ourselves in the beginning. Number two, verse number two, as one of the things that we learned was that faith, Iman, has various levels. But Iman is always coupled with action. And that too, that faith and action must be in all of the areas which Allah has instructed. Right? Whenever Allah speaks about Iman in the Quran, He always says, or if maybe not all the time, but most of the time, except for those who believe and do good actions. I don't think we have an example in the Quran where Allah only talks about Iman. Right? Faith is the beginning, right? to believe is the first step, but the only way that that faith is seen and is manifest to the individual personally is through acting, through doing the actions that are required of a believer. And as we talked about that faith has multiple levels, just like you have a staircase or a ladder that goes up that ascends, Iman is the same, that it is a continuous progressing ladder towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And obviously when it comes to faith and action, it's a faith in what Allah wants us to believe in. So Allah outlines in many ayat of the Quran, although the Quran doesn't speak about every single thing that we have to believe in, but we have the basic usul ad-deen in the Quran, 
<clears throat> and then actions, Allah gives us many of the good actions to do. But the Quran does not outline every single good action that a believer should be doing. And that's where we go to the hadith of the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt <clears throat> to see how they further expand on these two things. From there, the, first, uh, the third verse, um, one of the things that we looked at was that any movement which stands against the truth, against, against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is a movement founded on falsehood, on batil, and is bound to vanish. Allah has promised in many ayat of the Quran, where He talks about batil being something that will eventually dissipate, it will eventually go away. Right? In, in chapter 17, Allah says, وَكُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقْ وَزَّهَكَ الْبَاطِلِ Prophet is told to say to the people that the truth has come and falsehood has vanished and falsehood is something ever bound to vanish. Because as we mentioned that Allah is Al-Haq, Allah is the only truth, the only reality and it can never be done away with. Batil may try to disguise itself as the Haq which it often will do but eventually it will come out as being a mirage, a false reality and it is bound to vanish. And as we also mentioned similarly, that is that as battle is bound to vanish and, and dissipate and lose its power and glory, those who are also tied to battle will eventually also go be, be done away with. And those who are tied to the haq, who are tied to the truth to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are going to be successful and they will remain forever. And again, that is something even that the Quran mentions many other times in the, in, in the book that Allah and the religion of Allah will manifest itself across the entire globe at one point in time. We believe when the 12th Imam makes his advent and the revolution plays out. And at that time, falsehood will be removed from the face of this earth. And falsehood can, is not only ideologies, obviously, but it stems from ideology. But it's the oppression, it's the dhulam that we see around the world, it's the injustice, the inequalities that we see happening around us. All of these will eventually fade away. And as the hadith tell us, when the 12th Imam's government is established, it will be one that is based on justice, on truth. It will be one where everybody has the rights given to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Moving on from there, we looked at, and verse 4, 5, and 6 were kind of tied together. And we looked at the fact that there are times where we as believers must put up a fight to defend ourselves. And this is a natural right, and it's a God-given right we have. However, as much as we are strong in the war, we are also compassionate as believers. And we have to recognize that although today for us here in this country we're not at war with people outside, we are in a what we could call a cultural invasion or a religious invasion that day by day our cultural norms of religion, our religious teachings are being on the attack. We are being faced on a daily basis against the secular society. We're put face to face where our religious norms are being challenged by the Canadian society by the government and laws which are being passed and we are, although we're not being forced right now to submit to the secular rule within our centers, but we have seen and I'm sure you have seen that many of the other religions out there today, they have had to bend their religious teachings, their scripture to accommodate the rules that Canada has changed, right? Marriage is one, one, one prime example and the, 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 and the redefinition of marriage.
And so, although we are not at a level of, you know, at that level right now, but we always have to be on the awareness that religion in general is on the attack. The secular forces are obviously much louder than the religious voices are. And we have a right to defend ourselves. Again, a natural right. Anytime somebody is attacked, whether it be by a mosquito or a bee or a wild animal, our natural reaction is to defend ourselves. So similarly, as believers, that is a natural response that we get. When we are attacked, we either have that flight or, or fight or flight mentality. Either we stand and we fight for our rights or we run away. And so again, we also have two options here. One is we run away back home to our own countries, which for the most part are no better than what we find in Canada. Or we stay and defend ourselves and our religion and our culture and our norms of our faith. And it is a God-given right, as we had seen in the Quran, that as Allah had permitted the believers in Medina to defend themselves against a physical onslaught from the Quraysh, from the polytheists, from the mushrikeen, that we also have that same God-given right. And the one point obviously to mention is that as the Quran mentioned that yes, we are strong at war, we don't ever let, uh, you know, let, uh, let up that we are weak, but even if we have the upper hand and we are victorious, we are still compassionate. Right? Islam is a religion of compassion, a religion of accepting others, a religion of explaining to others our stand. And even in the times of war, the Prophet would many times show his level of compassion to the enemy. And the Quran would even tell us that even if the enemy comes to you and they finally submit and they you know, put down their arms and they want to learn about Islam, then we are obligated to allow them that opportunity to learn about the religion and hopefully they will accept the word of Allah. Moving on from there, verse number 7 was a very important verse um, where Allah, where, where the, 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 the summary of it was basically whoever supports the cause of Allah would find that he would reciprocate and support them in this life. Right? And this is a theme that Allah uses in Tansurullah, yansurkum wa yuthabbit akdamakum. If you help Allah, He will help you and make your feet firm. So Allah is making a pledge or a promise in this verse where He's saying that as believers, your obligation is to help Allah. Now we know as we looked at it that Allah doesn't need our help per se. He is Ghani al-Mutlaq. He is the all self-sufficient. He has no need for you and I. He doesn't need our power, our wealth, our whatever, our talents, our abilities. But when he says in Tansurullah, if you help Allah, this is a reference to helping the cause of Allah, helping humanity, helping the servants of Allah. And the reciprocation of Allah is when we help in his cause, when we are supporting people who need assistance, then obviously that, that right comes back to us, or that, that response comes back to us, that Allah helps us, he assists us, he gives us that strength and determination. And he, as he says, makes our feet firm. And this is even what we have been reading in the month of Ramadan. This dua that Rasulullah taught us, Allahumma adkhil ala ahlil kubur surur Allahumma aghni kulla faqir, Allahumma ashbiq kulla ja'in, that, you know, may Allah, hey, oh Allah give happiness to the people of the graves, feed the hungry, clothe those who are amply clothed, free the political prisoners, allow people who are far from their homeland to go back home. These are all ways, brothers and sisters, that we help the cause of Allah by helping humanity. It's not that Allah again needs the help, it's humanity that needs the help and we have been blessed in whatever way that we can to help one another, 
And by doing that, we again are ensuring that Allah will in turn reciprocate and give us that support from Him. Both in this world obviously and also in the world to come. Moving on from there, verse number 8 and 9. The theme basically changed to looking at people uh, who had either the sickness in their hearts or also the munafikeen, those who were, am who were outwardly against the religion of Islam. And they were people who openly had this disdain for the Qur'an and the teachings. And Allah showed us that those people would have, uh, would have uh, the downfall. They would lose in this world, they would be the losers in this world. And the elimination of the reward of their deeds. So there is this notion in the Qur'an which actually was repeated I think eight or nine times in this particular chapter. And there were eight or nine verses that ended with the word A'malakum, your actions. And basically those verses were showing us that those people who are working against religion, against Allah, whether again they be mushriks, they be uh, munafiks, or even they be people who as Allah talked about those sickness in their hearts but are gravitating more towards disbelief, that Allah would ensure that their good deeds are null and void in the world to come. Now we mentioned in that discussion as well that Allah, because Allah is Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, because He will not, as He says in many ayat of the Qur'an, uh, He would never waste the reward of people who do good. Those who are evildoers or who are sinners or who are non-believers, if they do good actions, Allah will reward them in this world. So, you know, many times people ask this question. Mother Teresa, she was such a good woman. She did so much work in India for the, for the poor, for the needy. But she died as a Christian. Will she be rewarded? And A, first of all, we don't know what was in her heart. We don't know what she knew of Islam, for example. And even supposing that she knew about Islam, but she didn't convert. At the end of the day, she was a good person. Based on the world outlook, she did good actions. She took care of people who no one else would take care of. So Allah would not be so unjust as not to reward her. And anybody in this world who does good, as we talked about, I think, last night or the night before, these philanthropists who give away billions of dollars to hospitals, to good causes, if they don't believe in God at all, they just they say, I don't believe God exists, they will at least get a reward in this world. They will get something here and now. Will they get in the world to come is obviously up to Allah to judge. From our Quranic perspective, we don't believe they would be rewarded. <clears throat> but then at the end of the day, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of the day, Allah will determine because these are His creations. He knows their intention. He knows what was in their mind. He knows whether they acknowledged religion in Him or whether they, they you know, decided not to believe in Him. <coughs> Allah will obviously deal with them with their own actions and based on their own book of deeds. Sallu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Moving on, when we get to verse number 10 and 11, we looked at this topic of Islam encouraging us to travel. <coughs> to travel around the world, to look at past nations, see their power and glory and how they today are literally pieces within a museum. And you know, through that discussion we had, we learned that there are many lessons that we can learn about um, other, gen other nations, other communities who lived at different times throughout history. 
and that Allah must always play a prominent role in our lives. <coughs> a prime example is if you go to Egypt, right, you see these massive pyramids that we will pay hundreds of dollars to visit, maybe we're not aware of the fact that those same pyramids were built by the people that oppressed the Bani Israel. Right? Those pharaohs that lived, that built these massive edifices, they were literally the leaders that claimed to be the Lord. Pharaoh is quoted in the Quran as saying, Anna Rabbakum al-A'la, I am your Lord the Most High. These are the same pharaohs, the same pharaohs, the same kings and dynasties that oppressed Prophet Musa and Harun and the prophets that came from the children of Israel. They oppressed, you know, Prophet Ya'qub, ya uh, uh, Prophet Yusuf, after giving him the power. Uh, and so when we go to these pyramids, yeah, they're beautiful things to take pictures of and take a selfie of and ride around on a horse or camel. But the goal should be that if we go to those pyramids in Egypt, we go and we remember those ayat of the Quran, that these were people who built a massive dynasty, a massive civilization. That these pyramids for thousands of years have stood the test of time. Weather hasn't you know, destroyed them for the most part, they're still intact. Obviously the outer shell has been you know, destroyed, but the pyramids itself remain intact. Allah is showing us, look, you know, as human beings, you may create the largest buildings, the tallest skyscrapers, these towers reaching into the heavens, kilometers high maybe. But at the end of the day, Allah is saying that, you know what, I'm in charge. And you can't escape from my power and authority. And so we looked at that, that verse of traveling, that, that travel should not just be a vacation for a time off. It should be an opportunity to also reflect on where we are. Right? If you have an opportunity to go to, let's say, the Rocky Mountains, which are only a few hours away. Beautiful sight to see. <clears throat> but then remember, for example, the verse of the Quran where Allah says, had we sent this Quran on a onto a mountain, you would see the mountain crumble and crush out of the fear and the love of Allah. And then we should reflect that does this Quran that we are reading in Ramadan, did it allow me to humble myself? If the Quran can destroy a mountain because of the beauty and the power of the Quran, then have I been able to destroy my ego, my conceit, my self-centeredness, my arrogance, my pride, my vanity through the ayat of the Quran? So when we go to these places, the mountains or the ocean, not only a, a vacation and a photo op, but it is a time to reflect on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the power that Allah has and what He expects from us when we go to these kinds of destinations. Moving on to verse number 12. One of the things that we hopefully picked up on was that believers live in this world and work hard for the sake of Allah and the teachings and we're promised paradise, while the non-believers live in this world and work hard for the pleasures of this world and nothing more. Again, we keep in mind that believer, non-believers are not all going to hell. There are a lot of non-believers out there who don't know about God, who don't know the true picture of who Allah is, how we understand Allah. Many times they will disbelieve in Allah or, or God, we can say, because of bad experiences. I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, I was out at the Weir taking photos. Maybe you saw some of my, my photos on Instagram. And I'm sitting there taking photos of the pelicans, and I met a non-Muslim, white Canadian, and he had a nice camera set up, so we sat to talk for half an hour, an hour. 
And he went on to tell me that he was born here, born into a Catholic family, but he doesn't practice Catholicism anymore. He doesn't believe in the church. And then for about 10 minutes, he went on to tell me how, although he doesn't believe in the church, and the, you know maybe because of his own negative experience with the Catholic church and the clergy and what he may have personally gone through, he went on to confess, he says that, you know, when I look around me at nature, and I see these birds, and I see nature all around me, he says, I can't but believe that there is a wise creator that put all of this into motion. He didn't believe in the Catholic Church, but he believed in God. But because he had a negative experience in church, he had to distance himself from God. Now, maybe I'll meet him another day, because he told me his schedule when he comes to take photos, and maybe I'll go back and talk to him, and introduce Islam to him. But the point being, brothers and sisters, is that there are a lot of people out there who lost faith in God because of people. They came to the masjid, they saw people act in a certain way, and they refused to come to the masjid again. They might still pray at home and do the wajibat and things like that, but they may have lost some level of confidence in the center or in the people who work in it. They may have had an alim come to a community and you know that person just rubbed them the wrong way. They got bad vibes. They were brushed off when they asked a question. And now they basically have taken out their aggression rather than on that person, on the entire religion, right? And so we have to understand that people out there are at different levels of Iman. And really, I mean, when I met this person yesterday and I talked to him, we were there for an hour taking photos in, the, in a nice day and talking. He truly believed in God. He truly wanted to accept that there is one God, but he just was not able to find that God out there. Right? So when you meet these people, maybe at work or at school, and they'll tell you, I don't believe in God, but I'm spiritual, try and open up that discussion with them. Right? Present to them Allah. Present Allah to them as the Ar-Rahman, the Ar-Rahim, the compassionate, the merciful God. Don't, you know, let them know that don't judge God by your measuring stick. Don't let other people dictate what your impression is of God and of religion. You know, unfortunately, you know, we have this saying, and it's, I think, based upon, I've heard it reported from different people, so I don't want to attribute it to one particular person, but there was a Muslim, apparently, who lived in one of the Muslim countries, and he went to the West, to Europe or somewhere, and he says, when I was in my so-called Muslim country, I saw Islam, but no Muslims. Meaning Islam was there as a state religion, but nobody followed it. There were no Muslims. He says, I came to the West, I saw Muslims. I, I, I saw um, Islam, but no Muslims. So he saw the religion here in the West, but he didn't see Muslims. He saw other people practicing the, nor the norms of, of what Islam talks about. In the Muslim country, there are tons of Muslims around who would come and pray and do all the acts of worship, but no Islam. Right? And how many times are those who have come from Muslim countries, you go to the bazaar, you go shopping, and the person will say, Wallahi, this is the best fruit. Wallah, this is the best. Wallah, this is this. And they'll openly lie on the name of Allah just to get you to make a purchase. They'll, you know, qasam bi khuda, that this is the best whatever. I swear that this is the most fresh Grapes you can find in the market. You go to Muslim countries, you, get, you go to a taxi, you get ripped off. You go to a government office, they'll send you from office to office to get a signature. Tell you come back tomorrow, they'll waste your time. 
They'll give you all of these lies in Muslim countries, right? Even in the so-called Shia countries, not general Muslims, but all Muslims were unfortunately all across the board were bad like this. Bureaucracy in Muslim countries is phenomenal. You don't see that in the West. Cheating is unbelievable. Bribes, easily a police officer will take a bribe to you know, not give you a ticket. You don't have that in Canada, but you have other ways that the governments and police are corrupt. Not at that level though. You don't get stopped for a traffic ticket and you can't tell the police, let me slip you $100 and forgive my ticket. He'll take you to jail, right? But you see this in the Muslim world, the so-called Muslim world, right? We have Muslims over there, but there's no semblance or very little semblance of Islam over there. So the point being is that um, non-believers don't, we should never judge them harshly. Again, the example I gave that I met that person, don't want to judge those kind of people because they just need the right stimulation, the right word to come to the path of Allah. And as we mentioned that, you know, the Quran spoke about many of the blessings of paradise. We looked, looked, about, looked at those ayat about the rivers of milk, of, of the rivers of water, of pure water that don't change flavor, rivers of milk, rivers of honey, rivers of wine which don't change taste, the various fruits of Jannah, the other pleasures which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, placed for us. All of these things are in Jannah waiting for us. <coughs> Let me just mention actually one thing before I move on about that person, that person I met yesterday. Another thing came to mind, he said, and again, it's a very thought-provoking discussion I had with this guy. The one thing he, he mentioned to me which really stood out, he says that belief in God is a kind of default. Again, he's a non-Muslim, but he says the belief in God, he says, for me is a default. And then I asked him, I said, what do you mean? He says that if I believe in God today, and I do what I'm instructed to do, and if I, when I die, if there is no God, no heaven, no hell, I haven't lost, because at least here I was a good person and I believed in some entity that was guiding me towards goodness. But he said, if I don't believe in God, and there is a God in the day of judgment, then I'm going to lose, because I wouldn't have believed in Him. And that point also got me to think, you know, again, just a random you know, stranger in Saskatchewan I'm talking to, and he had that level of ma'rifat of God, right? That even if, I, even if there is no God, I, I've believed in Him, so what? At least I was a good human in this life. And I had teachings to guide me down that path, right? So I, I wanted to share that with us because of that, that just it happened so on the moment yesterday and then it sticks in my mind, that, you know, meeting this person. It's, it was a beautiful conversation and it's something that I think all of us can learn from. We just have to go out there and search God, look for Him. And as God has promised in the Quran that He will allow us to find Him, those who struggle in the way of God. As Allah says, subulana." Those, those people who struggle in our ways, Allah, uh, in us rather, Allah says we will guide them in our ways, to our ways. So as long as we put the effort forth, Allah will reciprocate and He will give us that guidance on the path. Moving on from here, from verse 13 onwards. One of the main lessons that we learned from verse 13 is that we never fear anyone or anything other than Allah. They may look strong, but they're actually very weak. One of the lessons we should have taken away from the 23rd night of the month of Ramadan when we gathered for the A'mal, the acts of worship, is that we read three chapters of the Quran, right? We read Surah Rum, the chapter of the Romans. 
Surah Al-Ankabut, the chapter of the spider, and the Surah of the smoke, Al-Dukhan. And one of the themes of Surah Al-Ankabut, which is why it was called the chapter of the spider, is that Allah gave us a parable, a similitude between the life of this world and the house of the spider. And Allah says, in al-ankabut." The weakest, the frailest of homes is that of the spider. Saying that this world is so fragile and weak, these democracies, these countries that we live in, in Canada being a great country that it is, but our system is as weak as the web of a spider. Right? Look at this COVID pandemic. Two years ago, was it Feb March of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, COVID comes on the scene, a virus that you and I can't even see unless we have a high power microscope. And how many million people did it kill? It ravaged the entire economy of the world. The stock market dropped many points, right? Companies, billions of dollars were wiped off of their books in the matter of 24 hours. COVID was announced. If you look on the, go to Google Finance and look at the stock market from March 2020, look at every stock pretty much across the board. The day that COVID was announced, stocks dropped 20, 30, 40% overnight, instantaneously. That's how weak our system is, brothers and sisters, that a virus that you and I can't even see, we can't even, you know, can't see what it looks like. And it can decimate an entire global economy. So this, you know, the, the, this theory or notion of superpowers and they're untouchable and you can't, you know, defeat them. Well, we've seen in the world that the smallest of countries have been able to defeat the largest of superpowers. And Allah tells us in the Quran, How many times has a small contingent of people been able to defeat a large army, a large contingent by the permission of Allah? Many examples in the history of Islam from the time of the Prophet, Many countries that came afterwards, many nations that have stood the test of time, whereas other countries have had revolutions and that have gone back to their corrupt ways. Many countries have tried to have reform reformation and reform the government and politics and it doesn't happen. But as long as we recognize that we fear none except Allah, we don't worry about, you know, petty things. We only recognize Allah is the only power in the world, and we say this every day. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-ali al-azim. La hawla wa la quwwata. There is no power, no authority, except with Allah. As long as we not only say that, but we have that, that you know, conviction in our hearts, then nothing else out there can affect us, can you know, impact us. Nothing else will give us distress in the middle of the night because we will be able to turn towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Moving on from there at verse number 14, we said that the true believers, they base their acceptance of Islam, not on blind faith, but on careful study of the religion. And this is a point that you know, is, is extremely important because if we're merely saying, well, I'm a Muslim because my mom and dad are Muslim. I was born into a family from Iraq or from Afghanistan or from Pakistan or from India and my parents are Muslim, my grandparents are Muslim, we're a, we're a multi-generational multi Muslim family and so by default I'm a Muslim because parents are Muslims, then that kind of faith is a very dangerous faith for all of us because will that stand the test of time especially living in Canada?
where we are surrounded by a secular, multi-faith society, where our children are going to school, where all of their friends or majority are non-Muslims. Unfortunately, we don't have a Shia-based Muslim school here yet in Saskatoon. And maybe that's something we have to aim for now that we have a center, is can we establish a full-time Shia school based on the teachings of the Quran and Ahlul Bayt Because it makes a difference, believe me. If your children are going to school and the first thing they hear in announcements is music, compared to going to school in a Muslim school and the first thing they hear is Surah Fatiha or the Dua of the 12th Imam, it makes a huge difference in the character of that child as they grow up. So we have to recognize that our faith and our children's faith on Islam can't be just a blind faith. I know that the center runs the madrasa here on the weekend and if you haven't registered your children, I would suggest, highly recommend to enroll them in that school. And if you yourself are parents or if you're adult and you have the ability to teach, then volunteer to teach in this school. Because we can't have our children grow up in this environment with no formal education of Islam. One day a week on Thursday is not enough. Saying, well, my kids will watch lectures on YouTube and they'll learn their religion is not enough. We need to have a formulated, structured system to teach Islam to the next generation. Otherwise, we'll be like the, you know, the other religions that are losing followers day after day. You look at the Christian church in Canada, how many churches are being sold, they're turned into nightclubs. You can Google this, there are many churches across Canada are being shut down because people stop going, they're turning into nightclubs, turning into restaurants, turning into Airbnbs because church attendance is dwindling because people are leaving Christianity in droves and many of these churches are either being turned into those or at least turned into a masjid as it happened even in many cities I've been to recently many of our communities are buying churches but the point being is that we don't want to see that in our communities where our centers are now turned into other than the house of Allah and that will not happen unless we have our next generation who are firmly grounded on the teachings of Islam. Moving on to the verse 15, one of the lessons that we took away was that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the believers various views of paradise. We talked about those different rivers and, and benefits. However, at the end of the day, we follow the commandments due to our love of Allah and not necessarily for paradise. You'll recall the hadith of the commander of the faithful where he talked about how some people worship Allah out of the love of Jannah, right? And he called them the businessmen, the tujjar. They're doing tajarat with Allah. Some people worship Allah because of fear of hell. They are like the master and slave relationship with Allah. And then the Mawla said that some people worship Allah strictly out of shukr, out of thanks of Allah. And that that is the ibadat of the ahrar, the free men, the free women who have freedom, that they are worshiping Allah out of the freedom, not out of out of fear or out of coercion, but because they truly believe Allah deserves to be worshipped. And that's the level we aim to get to, brothers and sisters. That, and we mentioned some of the lines of Dua Kumail that, yes, Jannah is there. We love to go to Jannah. Yes, hellfire is there. We are afraid of the fire. But ultimately, if we do things for the love of Allah, for the pleasure of Allah, to get closer to Allah, to thank Allah for what He has given to us, then that is the best way to worship Allah and that will hopefully entail us to have the best station in paradise. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad.
And we'll conclude this in the next couple of minutes and tomorrow we'll finish off this chapter. Verse 16, we looked at the fact that Islam encourages and recommends that we ask questions about our religion. However, recognize that there's a difference between asking questions to learn and asking questions to critique. As we mentioned, or maybe I mentioned, I don't remember, but there were many ayat, there are many ayat of the Quran which start off with the phrase, Yes Alunaka. Yes Alunaka literally means they come and ask you, O Muhammad. They ask you questions. And people came and asked the Prophet about the soul, about the halal, the new moon. They asked him about many different things, about alcohol, about intoxicants, about gambling, about so many things. And never once did Allah say, Tell them to be quiet. Don't ask questions. Just submit. Be a, be, a, be a sheep and follow. No, every time Allah would say, Kul, say to them, give them a response. Because if people are, in, in, are honestly coming to ask questions about religion, the scholars should not be embarrassed to answer the question. No matter how controversial that question will be, no matter how sensitive it would be. We have the hadith which tell us that there is no haya. There's no bashfulness, no modesty when it comes to questions. People would come to the Prophet and ask him the most personal questions about, let's say, husband and wife intimacy. What can you and can't you do? He didn't turn them away. No, he gave them responses because we need to have answers based on sound knowledge. So if you have questions, ask them from the right people. Make sure you're asking to learn, not asking to critique or or find loopholes. You know, many times people will ask, Maulana will come in Muharram, you'll ask him a question. And then next year, another alim will come and you'll ask him the same question because you're shopping for the answer. You want to hear what you want to hear. Right? And you might get two different answers. Right? But once you get an answer, or if you found it online, or you email the office of the scholar you follow, the maraja, then accept it. As long as you have explained this situation thoroughly, and you get an answer, then be satisfied with it. If they're right, you get rewarded. If they're wrong, you get rewarded. Right? So there, it's a win-win situation either way. Number 17, verse number 17 rather, was that accepting the guidance from Allah will allow blessings from Allah to flow to us, which would increase in our guidance. So it becomes like, you know, like a, like a windmill. That the more you accept the guidance of Allah, the more the blessings come from Allah, the more the barakat comes from Allah, the more that will come is the more guidance will come. Right? Allah says in the Quran that those who believe, we will increase them in guidance. We will increase them rather in guidance. Every time we show more receptivity to Allah, we get more back from Allah. Not only spiritually, but even materially. Allah says, لَا إِن شَكَرْتُمْ لَأَزِيدَنَّكُمْ right? If you are thankful to me, I will increase you. You have this much money, be thankful to Allah, you're not you know, bankrupt. Thankful to Allah will give you more blessings. Having knowledge, thanking Allah for the knowledge, Allah will give you more knowledge. He'll facilitate ways for you to get more knowledge. He won't implant knowledge in your brain like a neuron chip being implanted with knowledge in it. No, but Allah will facilitate ways for you to get more knowledge. As long as we follow that pattern, we will continue to progress and increase in our blessings from Allah. And verse 18, and we will uh, have a couple of things after this, but we'll end the review here, that this world will come to an end one day, and the signs of it, as we mentioned, have already been 
stated by the Prophet. We are in Akhir zaman right now, brothers and sisters. We are in the latter days. As you remember the hadith I mentioned from the Prophet where he said, me and the Akhir zaman are like these two fingers right next to each other. Because what are the signs of the end of time is the coming of the last Prophet. He already came. He fulfilled his mission. He brought the Quran. He left behind 12 successors. The first 11 were killed. The 12th one is in Ghaibah. We are in the latter days. I'm not saying the end of the world will come tomorrow or next year or 10 years. But we know that the end of times are, the signs have already begun. That process, that domino has already fallen. And it's just a matter of time until we get to the end. When that will be, nobody other than Allah knows. But every day we have to prepare for that.